Hey devs, you're tuning into the debug log number 72. So today's episode is another interview with another pair of sprocketeers, maybe? <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're talking to uh, Joshua Herbert and Benjamin Gross, who are both content designers here at Sprockets. Uh, we get into a lot of good conversation, how to get started into content design, uh, the differences between you know indie uh, game design and AAA game design studios and their approaches to game design and storytelling. Uh, I will keep this very short because we have a lot to talk about and we get into the weeds of content design. So without further ado, this is the Debug Log, episode 72. Oh, Are sweet. we doing this? Right. Yeah. I think we are we're doing this. We're, is this it's officially... Official. Is this how the podcast starts? No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. We don't want. We don't want to they actually have the guests introduce the podcast, so <laughs> oh, nice. get ready. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot is, you haven't uh, listened. This is Joshua and Ben uh, with the Debug Log. All right, this is another episode, another interview episode, and this one I assure you will be a good one. We've again, like me and Ryan always like to do, brought in a couple of Sprockets folks, uh, and this guy, this time we're talking to a couple of designers who have a lot of industry experience, uh, and they're just going to share their experiences with you about content design, level design, uh, game design, etc. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce Benjamin Gross and Joshua Herbert. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, again. I forgot, yeah, Ryan's on the show too, of course. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Can't be a Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Welcome to the show again. He's Ryan. always here. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, uh, just, uh, you know, can we get a little bit of background? I, I, I was, uh, like I do with all our guests, I go on their LinkedIn and I stalk your page and look at their portfolio. So I've, I know a little bit about you guys, but can you guys explain a little bit about what you do and how you got into games? Okay. I guess, Josh, you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, Ben and I actually started our careers in Colorado, which is kind of an odd place to start in games. Um, we both had uh, gone to school for various things. I went for 3D animation to like a community college. And I think Ben went for, you went for the same thing, right? But to art school? Yeah, same thing. But uh, I decided to spend like all the money I'll have until I'm retired on it. <laughs> yeah. Everyone said everyone. Yeah. So I went to Front Range Community College and uh, I actually started out in computer science, but I decided to switch over to 3D animation uh, because, uh, no offense, I got real bored <laughs> doing but I should have stuck with it because it, you know. No offense to every yeah. animator. <laughs> not, no, 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 not, not animator. He's like about computer, right? computer yeah, science. He just tried yeah. not to offend us at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but the thing is, like, now I'm like, oh, I'm probably going to go back to school for that. But anyway, we, we started together at Idle Minds. Um, it's this uh, company in Colorado. They released Pain for the PS3. It was the first uh, downloadable PSN title. Um, and they also used to do Cool Borders, if you remember that uh, series of video games. Cool so, Borders. Yes. Yeah. So we started there together um, back in 2011. Uh, we didn't work on those titles, by the way. That's just We're just name dropping for the studio. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, represent. Yeah, we were working on a um, action RPG style game called working title was called Ruin, and then that title was ruined by marketing. They turned it to <laughs> Warriors Lair, uh, and um, so that's how we met, and that's where we started. Ben, would you like to elaborate on that? 
Uh, yeah, so we were we were both hired as level designers at that studio, um, and the game was a sort of an isometric camera uh, action RPG, and so we were actually required to build levels for a um, a a system that would uh, randomly generate the the different levels together and stitch them into a dungeon essentially, um, and they just they needed really entry level people to do level design, and that was that was exactly what we got to do. So. Yeah, we were fresh off the street. Like right. we had zero experience. When I applied, I didn't even know what the term level design meant. Like I was like, hey, there's a game studio here and might as well apply for it. And I'd actually applied there before, but they didn't even give me the time of day uh, until I had a degree in 3D animation. So Interesting. Yeah, it seems yeah. to happen a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which so is it- sil- it's silly to me. I feel like you should find talent wherever it comes from. But I guess you have to f- you know field your stuff somehow. Yeah. True. So you guys mentioned level design and uh, what are your, what are your official titles at Sprockets? Are you guys content design, level design? What what's your official title? Uh, I'm a I'm a content designer. That's okay. a uh, an official title currently. Okay. So that actually brings into question because I was you know researching the field a little bit earlier, and just one of the things I read was just the maturation or the like guess maturity of the game designer, quote unquote game designer, who was like. It seemed like that was the de facto title for most designers, I guess. And eventually, as you know, games got bigger, production studios got bigger, and gaming studios got bigger. They started to specialize their roles as like level designers, content designers, uh, etc. What um, I guess what drove you guys to I guess shifting towards content design, or is there a difference between content design versus well, a game designer, or what? How's that work? It's it's kind of depends on the studio, and a lot of times it depends on the size of the studio. Um, I. In my experience, content design is sort of a blanket term given to level designers, mission designers, um, and any game designer that really is is working with sort of the the flavor aspects of the game. Like you're making you're making visual levels, you're making characters, and you're deciding what they look like, and you're you know et cetera et cetera. Or you're creating missions for the game where you're actually deciding what the player is going to do with the content and how they interact with the content of the game. Um, And sort of the real differentiation, I think, at least at Sprockets and at previous studios where I've worked, between some of the game designers is that there's there's sort of two sides on the broad side of things. There's the content design, and then there's systems design. And systems designers are sort of, you know, they deal with a lot of the 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 balancing of the game. They they do a lot of spreadsheet work and figuring out, you know how how much something's going to cost or how much, you know, like what it's going to take to level this character up. Um, and they work a lot more on like those systems versus the content designer who actually applies that that polished layer of content over the top of all the game systems. Mm. So you guys actually make it fun then. There's the whole, the whole math and mechanical bit, which, you mm-hmm. know, kind of makes everything work and, you know, feel good together. Not to say that's not a fun thing either, but you guys actually add that extra layer of depth, it sounds like. That flavor, he said. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. interesting. That's one so, way I look at it for sure. Yeah. So in your own words, I guess, is that how you would describe or define a content designer as the flavor guy? Or just like, what, what would you define as content design in your own words? To, to me, this is, and this is kind of like an age old thing in the de- design world, game dev world. Um, I believe that content design is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Because um, you're working with a lot of different disciplines, um, you know, everything from engineering to art to make sure that the content looks good and plays good. Um, and various disciplines within design as well. Um, and, uh, you're, you're hooking it all up. Um, to me, it's like, like, I don't know, 
this is this is kind of going off track a little bit but like i started making games in like level editors that that shipped with games duke nukem 3d uh tie uh, i was like um, oh yeah yeah it was like the the build engine i think it was called and um that thing like was how i started just like at home i just started tinkering with it and that's kind of like what like what i do professionally now so hmm. it's just taking a bunch of different assets plugging them together to make sure that the player has a good experience right right yeah I actually meant to ask that question is like I oh I when I talked about like um like how did you get into games I kind of wanted also wanted to know like what like what was that spark that made you say okay hey I want to do games I want to you know go to school for games or or, or for design and yep. it sounds like you know the Duke Nukem was yours uh Josh what was yours Ben what was the thing that put you over the edge and made you pursue Well I games? mean I my dad and my mom bought me a uh, an NES in preschool. I think I was four years old when I first got my NES. And, you know, I just basically that was it. From then on, I was in front of the television all the time playing video games. And uh, I was really big into art as well going through school. And um, and eventually I got into computers in, like, middle school. And, and it just sort of seemed like the natural sort of mashup of those three mm-hmm. um, hobbies. And, uh, and so when I went to school and, uh, and I wanted to go to art school, I, the 3d animation thing seemed really cool. Um, and granted, I'm, I'm not an animator. I didn't pursue that, that ultimate path, but it, it did certainly help me get into it. But, um, yeah, I think my first editor that I was using was actually, I was building scenarios in age of empires two oh, and <laughs> yeah. I loved their, their scenario editor. You could do anything. You had triggers that would trigger certain moments and spawn units or, or kill units at certain times. And you could create stories from it. Um, and from there I, I eventually got into like fallout three editing with the, with the GEC. And, um, so yeah, like getting into, getting into level, uh, sorry, not level, but um, the actual engines and the the editors that studios uh, provide for free is an absolutely incredible and ex- excellent way to get into content design. Yeah, and there's tons of them out there too. You've got like Valve's. Uh, I guess they have the Hammer engine, which mm-hmm. like that. That's you know debatable on how uh, it's it's excellent, it's powerful, but it's like a pain in the ass to use. I think. Um, but then you also have like, you know, Blizzard has, um, their like Starcraft, uh, shipped with a, a level editor. And I think one of their Warcrafts did, um, as well. I'm probably getting a lot of that totally incorrect, but, but those are games that like we, you know, I tinkered with when I was a kid as well. Um, and like, you can find them for free in pretty much any, uh, big title that ships. Interesting. Yeah, totally. And I Is think that, some- that was, that was really the moment for me where it was like, this is a this is a living like people actually do this yeah. to you know create games and like once that once that connection is made it's like these are the tools that the developers are actually using to make the content you're seeing like that that was just the clicking point for me that's yeah that's really cool uh is is that something that developers and uh, game studios are still doing like still pushing out the their design tools with big releases i, I, I just like I feel like it might be happening less and less like mm. like uh Fallout 4 came out and I I was really excited for them to release their editor and pretty much everyone was expecting it and and I don't even know if it's still out yet like like yeah. it might still be people are waiting for it but but additionally what's happening now is you're starting to see a lot of these editors come out where you can actually publish games without buying the editor like Unity or mm. um Unreal yeah um <clears throat> And, you know, Unreal Development Kit was a pretty standard 
uh, tool set for even professional designers for a long time that you could pick up as a freelancer, just a hobbyist. That's true. Um, so I think studios are feeling less pressure or desire even to put them in their games now and they're in their ship, uh, when they ship, because there's just like, you can just get unity now and there's a million tutorials on YouTube. Uh, and it's, that becomes vastly more useful than their proprietary software. That's so true. Yeah. Times yeah. are, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Josh, I was just going to ask, I remember watching you stream, um, doom and by the way guys feel free to plug anything you have during the show so um, but anyway, <laughs> i was watching you on your stream uh played um through the new doom and i was wondering if you had a chance to actually check out snap map because that's i thought that was kind of an interesting direction for them to take where like like you guys are saying it seems like they're putting out less and less of these content tools or these editors and yet it like id bethesda decided to say hey here's a method for like within the game you can just sort of like really easily just literally snap things together yeah, um, I actually didn't get a chance to play with um, with that at all. Uh, my uh, my free time now that I do it professionally is a lot more limited, so I don't make it as much content as I used to, um, like just on my own. Um, but uh, you, this is another thing that I that I want to bring up is like a lot of games are starting to incorporate a level of content design into the game themselves. Like Ben mentioned Fallout Four, and there's a lot of like base building and stuff. And like, you know, the whole idea of creating your own space inside of a game, Mm -hmm. it feels so solid, especially if it persists and it's something you can like build upon and defend and gives you bonuses, etc. And so uh, you start seeing games that come out with these, uh, you know, world building tools. I mean, you've got games that are based around it, like Ark or Rust, you know, Minecraft, you know, as a level editor. So um, I didn't get a chance to play with Doom, but I have seen some people's creations and they are pretty amazing. Interesting. So I kind of wanted on that on that note about like user created content, uh, because I was thinking when I was reading this article, they were mentioning, you know, game designers or content designers as the interactive storyteller, basically telling like Ben mentioned, you know, creating characters, creating, you know, the story behind the characters is all you got what you guys do in creating that interactive story. Uh, So my question was like, how does, especially with, with the shift going to user generated content, how does that affect the, the story that you're trying to tell usually, or I don't know if you guys have worked in games that do that, but you know, I guess conceptually, how does that come into play? Like, does that make sense? (laughs) Just like, yeah, no, it totally makes, it totally makes sense. Ben, did you want to get in on Um, this one? So you're asking like if user generated content is affecting like the, the role story. of the content. Yeah, the story designer. that the content yeah. designer is trying to It's I mean not to not to an, a real great extent. The the thing about that is that your game pretty much from the onset has to be designed with user generated content in mind. Mm-hmm. And if you're not immediately like thinking about, oh, well we want players to be able to create levels or scenarios or mod this game, like right at the beginning, I'm sure you guys as engineers know, like how difficult that really is to sort of implement, you know, then, then it's not, it's not really going to work out. And so I'm, I'm incredibly appreciative of all the studios out there that really embrace the user generated content and use it as fuel to increase their own games, you know, sort of presence and, um, and how players interact with that. Um, I, I don't see it really affecting the content designer role unless unless the game, like I said, is truly built from the beginning as something where users can generate content and that's like a main part of the initial game design. And I want to add on a little bit of a, a piece to that. So I feel like um, 
especially now when you have things like Twitch where you can watch someone play live or you've got like Let's Play on YouTube. Um, you can watch someone play through pretty much any game. And the way they play that game, the way it unfolds, um, especially in games that are more open format, similar to like Skyrim or something, um, the stories that come out of that are, are user-generated content. That's basically what's coming out of it is like you're now watching entertainment while someone is playing entertainment, like they're experiencing entertainment. So it's kind of an interesting thing that I think it's like, it's like this weird fractal of, <laughs> you know, of like user generated content. And, and it's um, kind of funny because like, if you think about Bethesda's games, um, I used to joke about this with people all the time is like the fact, it, in my opinion, the fact that they made their games when they were primarily on PC with all of that user generated content in mind, I feel like in the Fallout 3 era, it really got to the point where it almost seemed like Bethesda wasn't, wasn't like working as hard to fix bugs or to make game systems <laughs> better knowing that there would be a mod that would like fix everything for them you know oh, yeah, because totally. an, an, <laughs> eventually someone who has just way more time than than anything else is going to go in and like mod it and create this crazy you know like oh we're going to replace all the weapons in the game with ones that are real or something like that or you know the dragons are now stone cold steve austin or whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> thomas the tank engine thomas the tank engine yeah that's true um, cool yeah so i guess still on the topic of like this interactive storytelling that you guys do do you feel like um the method or mode that you guys tell a story in a game changes or should change based on the context of the game you're working on, like skyrim versus uh minecraft versus i don't know um zelda game you know should it change with context uh, or you know does it have to change with context or context i guess how you ch tell a story um yeah i do believe it should um so there's this thing called ludo narrative dissonance and Oof. um ludo is a latin word uh, i didn't make this up this is this is like this is somebody else came up with this way smarter than me ludo narrative dissonance is basically when your gameplay ludo means play um, so play narrative dissonance, basically when the narrative does not match up with the gameplay. Um, and I think you see this, uh, in a, a lot of AAA games, um, especially not to knock on AAA games, but I, you know, like they have to reach a large target demographic. And so it's very, the gameplay becomes like very easy. Uh, an example I'll use is something like Tomb Raider or Uncharted, where you're playing an adventure game. It's fun. There's explosions happening. Um, and you're playing a protagonist that's supposed to be like a heartfelt human with friends and family. And then you're running through this game, like murdering people mercilessly. And so <laughs> like, true. so like while, so like, I think they did a really good job with the reboot of Tomb Raider, where you're stuck on this island full of brainwashed maniacs who are trying to murder you. Like, yeah, of course you're going to defend yourself. Right. But like in the new Tomb Raider and the new Uncharted and pretty much all the Uncharted's you're like running through killing merc mercenaries who's like, it's just their job to be there. Some like rich person hired them, you know? And like these people probably have families back home and they're like, I don't know. They just told me to go on this job. I'm a contractor. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so like that to me is like, you know, you end up with like your gameplay is supported, but your narrative, like you get this weird kind of dissonance there. And also, especially with user generated content, um, depending on what you're trying to do, um, like you look at a game like Ark, which, which I mentioned earlier, I've, I've actually recently played a lot of it. So that's why I'm referencing it. Um, a lot of the stories that come out of that are just user stories. They're not there's no story story there. There's very little like like there's some lore, you know, and there's some like, you know, hints at what's going on on the on the island that you're on. But as you play, the majority of what comes out of it is just like 
I built this base and I got raided or this dinosaur came in and messed my junk up, you know, like, so, um, I think that it, I think that your gameplay, when you consider the narrative, it should, they should be, um, synchronous if, if that makes sense. Interesting. I I agree. I think, I think to add to that, it, it's absolutely essential that it, at the onset of of figuring out the the type of game you want to, you want to make, you really need to figure out which side of the fence you fall on because there is there certainly is that side of the fence where it's like oh we want the players to create their own stories you know and that's a huge element of of really good game design is like the ability for players to sort of create their own version of what that game is to go and tell their friends or to you know to tell friends later that oh this really cool thing happened in minecraft when i did this or when i did that you know versus like Oh, you're gonna create a you know a very story oriented game oriented game where you know that those elements are more uh, static. So like every player is sort of gonna encounter the same thing in the same way because that's the way the game was designed at the beginning. Like if you're going with the Uncharted model, it's like that's very clearly a, a situation where minus the combat, pretty much everyone experiences the exact same game. Um, versus like you're going with Ark where everyone's games is are, are sort of different, you know, because like Josh might might run in and, and get killed right away by this one dinosaur, but I might go in and be able to survive for like two hours or something like that. Yeah, totally. Interesting. Interesting. So that also uh, kind of reminded me when you guys were initially talking about just the story and how studios are, I guess, trying to balance the, uh, like how they leverage, you know, I guess, in-house story versus user-generated story. Uh, and I, it reminded me of uh, Destiny and like how story and lore played out in that game. And I was wondering, did you, is there, a, I guess, how do you balance, you know, how much story you deliver as a content designer versus how much you're expecting, you know, you know, the sharing of the game or, you know, being in a party with other people in your, I guess, quote unquote, fire team, how that would sell, I guess, the story and lore of the game and content. Well, I think it all comes down. It com- it's a couple things. So it comes down to one, um, just standard design is like you want to have peaks and valleys of experiences. And so um, it's a lot to think about when you consider every single experience you, you'll be having from like button clicks to running around to like actual story moments and cutscenes to the fight that you're going to have or whatever. Um, Destiny did a really interesting thing where um, you pick up these things called grimoire cards mm-hmm. Um, and you get like, you get a lot of in-game like narrative from characters and cutscenes and stuff, but it's not overwhelming. And for the people who are really interested in the lore, they could go online and look at the grimoire cards that they've picked up. Or at this point, you can just search any of them because it's on the internet. Um, but they, uh, they have these really deep and awesome, like really well-written, um, uh, pieces of lore uh, that come from these grimoire cards that explain the world that you are in and how everything works. Like there's one grimoire series that talks about how all the weapons and things that are happening in destiny are paracausal, which is like, means that they're not, they're basically non-physical, like in the third dimension. And it talks about how they go beyond our dimension and that's how they work. Um, and, and, <laughs> I know, right? and yeah, I and it's no like, idea. <laughs> like in, it, in the game, you never exposed to that because mm-hmm. that to me, like that, that's a good decision because, not everybody's going to vibe with that, you know, like that's going to be like, okay, that's cool. Like some people really get into it. See, Um, I I actually tend to disagree with that point. The, mm -hmm. the, 
enormous amount of really good writing that went into those cards, I think was lost on so much of the audience because mm-hmm. it wasn't an integral part of the actual platform game. Yeah. And like, I agree. Like it was really good writing. I actually even downloaded some of them to my Kindle and I was reading them like hmm. in bed or like, you know, on the train or whatever. And it just, it kind of made me sad that they didn't find a way to actually let me read those in destiny, the game, you know, because yeah. it is, it is really good writing, you know, and it, it and beyond that, I think, yeah, that's the only part that I really disagree with is I, I wish it had been part of the core game. I do too, but the the question is here, like, there's so much of that. Like, there's so much lore. Like, you're saying you write it on the train and, like, you'd go to sleep reading it. Like, I remember reading through the um, how Oryx became Oryx, and, like, that took me forever to read through, <laughs> through that. Like, um, yeah, I don't true. think that... It certainly would have informed probably the quality and the length of the writing had they chosen to put it inside hmm. the game. And that just yeah. goes to show you, like, exactly how some of this content is designed for every mm-hmm. game is... It, it depends on on each and every situation how you're going to implement it yeah and just like um just like with anything that you do you got to consider your target demographic you know like you got to think about who's going to be playing this game how often they're going to be playing it like what is their play session length going to be you know and do they have the time to sit down and listen to you know 30 minutes of exposition like in metal gear solid or something you know like oh geez. yeah yeah so that actually brings in a question. You guys talked about lore and story, uh, and we've been talking about it in general, but mm-hmm. specifically about lore, um, I guess kind of want to give a nod to maybe our indie developers out there. And like the question is, how important is lore for a content designer or game designer or game studio or a group of friends making a game? How important is that on the onset of the project or just in the production of a product project to define content? So... I think for me personally, just in general, um, the philosophy I, that I follow for for every design that that I create is that it should follow, so it should point to some purpose. Like you should always design for a purpose. I agree. Um, and I think that in in every game, in every single situation, if you just if you just put something into a game purely because you think it might be cool, like you might be right, it might actually be cool, and it could actually be fun. But in my opinion, it's always going to be stronger if you find multiple ways to reinforce that element. And whether you can decide, like that may be through content, that may be through giving it a backstory, or it may be through some other means, you know, like connecting it to other features or something like that. But um, I don't think it's like, I don't think you have to go as far as saying like every game needs lore, every game needs a story. But I think in in many cases, that sort of attention to detail really helps your game. Yeah, exactly. So like, um, we'll talk about a little bit of like, you know, some indie games here or some smaller studios, like um, one game that really worked really, really well, not necessarily with lore, but with story, I thought was Firewatch. That game blew me away uh, with its content. Um, and, you know, they did a really good job, I, I think, for what they had to do, uh, or what they were working with. But um, there's their their lore, like only goes so deep in and, and it was and it fit, it fit. You know, like it fit the whole thing, what they were going for. It fit the world that you were playing in. And it made me feel connected to the character. Um, So I think it's important, just like Ben said, to um, everything you design, design with a purpose. Like it should make sense why something is there. And if it doesn't make sense, it should eventually become like eventually make sense. Right. Um, I think of lore almost as branding some sort of like in a weird way. 
So you look at a game like Borderlands. Um, their lore in the whole game that you play is like this crazy, you know, run around just shooting shooting things up, listening to cool music, having fun. That's and one that's of my the... favorite indie games, by the way. Oh yeah, totally indie <laughs> games. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely shift gears there. Yeah, um, that's too funny. <laughs> I was like, yeah, mine too. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like you know that was that's a brand. You know that that's a whole brand that they're that they're selling. And I think I think what a lot of people don't realize is like when you're creating a product, everything you put into it is that product, you know, like, and, and that product should have a cohesive brand to it. Um, whatever that brand is, you know, does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, thinking about how to like scope it, how to like mold it to like, like you said, accomplish your task, build that brand. What like go toward the goal you're creating, you know? <laughs> so I mean, it, that it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Cool. What- I had a uh, one more question, I guess, before shifting gears, uh, and just because you mentioned lore and story, and I just wondered if you could describe or define what, like, how those two are different uh, when you're talking about lore versus story and, and branding versus, I don't know what the other one would be. <laughs> so I sort of see lore more as the what's happened before the story. Yeah, same. Before the actual you know story of the game that you're going to be experiencing okay so if you look at destiny you know you play through you play through a very you know linear storyline and these actions and these these activities are happening to you in real time but the lore is like why is the last city the way it is Mm. why why is this faction of enemies attacking me why why do they feel the way they feel and and it sort of goes into like sort of creating all of these universe building roots mm-hmm. for that make the story make the thing that you're experiencing right then and there actually feel more real to suspend that disbelief exactly and it and it lends credence to like ben said one of the biggest things for me is like why am i killing these things mm-hmm. like most games focus around some kind of conflict where you're smashing enemies like incessantly and mercilessly and <laughs> that's just not how people are usually like you don't just like go up to a dog and just start kicking it you know like like hopefully in world not. of warcraft yeah. that's like you know <laughs> that's what you do not. or whatever Otherwise you know and, crazy. yeah exactly but like you know you got to have a reason to do that gotcha cool. yeah it's kind of it's actually kind of funny you mentioning destiny earlier in the lore um it, like i i read a few of the grimoire cards and then just sort of reading some things online about some of the later content and it's funny because the more I started paying attention, the more almost your characters seem like jerks. Like you're sort of like traipsing around, yeah. like kicking everyone else out or just like knocking down doors. And you're like, well, is it really so bad that, you know, the, the people on the Dreadnought don't want us here? We kind of crashed into their stuff and started shooting them up. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's like I you- think overall that that sort of like make muddying the lines between, you know, like black versus white, like these, this is bad. This is, is good really helps you sort of dive into something. You know, it makes you think about the game. It makes you, it takes you past just, I'm pulling this trigger and killing something and shooting aliens in the face. They don't look like me. Get them. Yeah. 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 It's different. I hate it. This is getting really political right now. (laughs) What's crazy though, too. What's crazy though, is if you read those, um, the lore and destiny, like you eventually kind of come to understand the, the hive, which is one of the main antagonistic forces in, in destiny. And, um, 
you kind of like you kind of sympathize with them almost you kind of understand where they're coming from and it makes it gives them a face it gives them a voice and then so no longer when you're fighting against them do you just feel like i'm you know i'm killing some i'm blowing up some you know pixels in a you know some pixel aliens i'm like now i'm fighting against the hive and it's now become this battle of like foundational beliefs about how life should exist in the universe and it, it feels a lot deeper gotcha yeah that makes sense cool uh so just to i guess shift gears a little bit and t- if you guys could lend us uh or explain how someone could get started i guess like how did you get started in becoming a content designer how does like do you need a, a degree do you need higher education you know nb not nba but like a, a art degree or you know game design degree or certification yeah, no- or anything yeah, knowing what you know now, like, uh, what's some advice? Like, you know, what do you think the path is <laughs> yeah, for yeah. better or worse? Well, um, I certainly don't think you need a crazy expensive degree to break into the industry as a content designer. Um, I won't say it's easy. Um, it's it's some of the the easiest path to get in, uh, considering if you don't know how to code and you're you don't consider yourself to be like a very good artist. Um, but I will say at least my education certainly helped a lot in that I learned how to use industry standard, um, programs like Maya or, you know, Premiere even, um, you know, like a lot of the Adobe products. And again, like you could totally learn these on your own, but, um, I think formal education does help. Um, and as Josh said in, in our first job, we, we actually asked and we were told that, that you know because of our degrees it it certainly got us one step closer to actually being um looked at seriously but but yeah i i don't think you have to go and spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars on a really expensive art degree just to become a content designer um yeah i totally agree with that and in fact like i support education because i believe that it's important to um you know get more smart but (laughs) um but like honestly i think that uh a lot of a lot of the way we do education especially in america not to make things super political but i think it's a little skewed um and i don't think you need to spend uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to get an education especially to work in games Um, now obviously like it depends on what your discipline is but for content design in particular um if i were going to do things differently um if I went back, I, you know, like, I'm glad that I got my degree and I only have an associate's degree, um, for the record. So it's like not super fancy, super expensive. Um, if I were going to do things differently, I would do it very similarly to what I've already done, which is I got involved in like modding communities and I built maps for like counter-strike and a lot of these people in those modding communities already worked in video games. Um, especially in Counter-Strike, you would have people making content, whether it was, um, like for me, I was like part of the like csskins.net or something like, and it was like a a forum where you could go online and just post all your stuff you make for Counter-Strike. Um, and a lot of people in there were like animators, uh, and doing things like building new weapons and textures. Not very many people actually making levels in there, but, um, but yeah, I would just go back and, and get involved in a modding community, or I would today use Unity or Unreal to create my own games, and I would cr- I would just create as many as I could. I would 
create them. I'd put them out there. I would get people's feedback. Um, I would make sure that they were on like a website like itch.io. That's itch.io. Tons of indie games and indie devs go there to post their stuff. Sometimes it costs money. Sometimes it's a donation thing. Sometimes it's free. But you get excellent feedback there and it's great for visibility. Um, and that's the biggest thing is getting like you're making games most of the time games are made for users, right? Like in my opinion, they should be always for the user, but, um, you're going to get user feedback and there's no way to make your product good unless you have solid user feedback. So, yeah. And, and I, I totally agree. I think, I think you can make a very compelling and, and, you know, really powerful portfolio, which is what a lot of game studios are going to look at. They're going to look at your portfolio of work. Yes. Um, especially if you're new, if you haven't, if you don't actually have any shipped titles on your resume, um, then they're going to be able to look at, you know, what you can provide through a portfolio. And you can absolutely do that with, with free editors, Unreal, Unity, whatever. Um, I will say one of the one of the biggest things you should be able to do is to be critical about game design, games that you've played. Learn how to talk about the games that you've played. Learn how to look at them critically and decide why you like something or why you don't like something. And even to be able to provide answers for why you think it should be different or um, how you would fix you know, a particular system that you think was not fun or a story element you think was not fun. Um, because one of the, the greatest skills a designer can have designer can have is the ability to communicate with others um, really powerfully what they believe and why they believe it about Mm. game design. That's crazy. Go ahead. Sorry. I I do want to add one more thing to that. Um, If you want to be strategic about it, you can get involved in a modding community for a currently very like popular game. Um, So like a lot of people modded Skyrim when it came out and they're still, they still are. Um, if you get involved in that community and you learn to make content for that game, um, I think it helps you a little bit more. And on top of that, what you can do is you can go on YouTube and look at things like Game Design Toolkit, which has excellent um, like breakdowns of video games and what works about them or not. Um, you can go read books like A Theory of Fun for Game Design by Raf Koster um, or Game De- The Art of Game Design by Jesse Jesse Shell. It's like a um, just books that talk about. So we had him on the show. Uh, Oh, no shit. Oh, yep. there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. It just, Good recommendation. Just, yeah. <laughs> just go and there's there's tons of resources out there now. The internet is your greatest tool. Go get involved in a community, ask questions, watch YouTube videos, watch tutorials, figure out what makes the game fun and, and what makes it work. Um, and, and it, it, you know, basically it's all kind of comes down to like an equation. <laughs> it's all, it's all like a process, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And I will say about, you know, talking about game design, please, please leave ego at the door. That is the most frustrating thing that you can ever encounter as a game designer in any element is just people who refuse to look past their own design to like, to even dream that something could be better. And that's really like the key to iteration on making your game a better thing is to just be able to take that criticism and work it into a better product. Preach. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, honestly too, like if it, if you don't take that from people who talk to you, like while you're making your game, your players are going to rip it apart and that's the worst time for it to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. Well, I was going to ask about like your, the toolbacks, I guess, for the content designer, but it seems like you guys kind of touched on a lot of those is like, you know, having, being very communicative or, 
you know, very open and vocal about what you believe and why you believe it. Um, is there anything else that you guys could, I guess, that you have in your toolbox, I guess, uh, as, like, as far as mentality or other skill sets that you guys use or even like actual specific tools like um, I don't know if you guys use Excel, but you, know, you mentioned Unity, but other tools that you might use to be um, successful at your game, at your job? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think um, if you have access to, to 3D uh, software, like learning Maya or 3ds Max, um, if you have access to that, you can certainly jump into that. A lot of the uh, game engines that you'll be working on uh, are very similar in their control schemes. Um, that's something I will say is um, I don't think it's necessarily a requirement as a as a content designer to be sort of technologically minded, but you should certainly try to master the tools you're given. Whatever tool you're trying to use, whether it's Unity, Unreal, just dive into that tool. Be able to like work with almost any portion of it. Um, like Josh said, just jump on YouTube, look at tutorials, be able to know that tool inside out because ultimately your ability to get good content into a game is only really limited by your knowledge of the tool that you're using to implement it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Josh, do you have any extras? I mean, I could go on for hours about what, <laughs> what, what to do. I mean, like, and he will. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, you know, there's, there's also like the networking side of things, you know, um, when I, <laughs> This this is this is kind of interesting. So I once interviewed at Sledgehammer Games. Uh, they make Call of Duty uh, games, and I didn't I didn't get the job, um, but I was interviewed because like two years prior, I was at E3 and I met the lead level designer for Halo Four, and I gave him my card, and I was like brand new in the industry, and I was like, hey, by the way, here's my card. I'm just looking for a job. I want to work on AAA games. Like I'm passionate. And you can check out my portfolio here, whatever. And he seemed super annoyed, but he was like, all right, whatever, add me on LinkedIn. And so I did. Nothing came of it. Two years later, all of a sudden, Sledgehammer Games like hit me up out of the blue. Um, and they were like, hey, do you want to come in for an interview? So-and-so recommended you. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Like totally confident on the phone. But I was like, who the hell is that guy? I looked him up on LinkedIn. Sure enough, it was the dude from Halo 4. And I was like, dang, like that... That was a crazy like roundabout thing. And I'm pretty sure the guy just was like, hmm, let's see who's on my LinkedIn that lives in the Bay Area uh, <laughs> that is also a level designer. But because um, I like mostly worked in indie games before that. So, uh, yeah, your network is enormous. I mean, Josh, how many times have you and I like sort of orbited each other simply based oh, yeah. on like recommending each other, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And like the game currently, you know, games are getting to be a, a big industry, but like um you'll know you'll like if you get into it now and i don't know maybe for the near future who knows but um you'll you'll know everybody in it like pretty much everybody knows everybody uh you go to e3 and you see like it's like a huge party with all your friends or gdc or something um so that is a that is a big deal yeah yeah i I actually uh we i think we've talked about that a lot is just how big networking is uh and Mm -hmm. josh we were talking earlier at work at sprockets and mm-hmm. you mentioned, uh, which I kind of want to just dive into just briefly, uh, about indie versus triple A when it relate as it relates to content design and sure. how those dynamics play off each other or don't play off each other and the differences I guess there. I think you were mentioning yeah. just like how you had a preference towards uh, indie games and, and their take on content design, and I wonder if you guys wanted to just jump into that a little bit. Absolutely. And I actually, I actually want to talk a little, I want to have a conversation, open conversation here with all of you about this, mm-hmm. uh, especially Ben, because 
the way no. I feel about it, okay, well, uh, <laughs> the way I feel about it is, um, oh no, so, my personality's leaking out. Oh, here it comes. <laughs> put it back in. Put it back in. <laughs> Plug your nose. Um, I don't know where that came from. Anyway, so <laughs> the way that I see it is like indie games. Um, you're coming from a place. Usually with indie games, you're coming from a place where you have your limited time, your limited budget, your limited resources. So you have to be creative about what you do. Usually that means you have a pretty good idea, um, and maybe even a solid prototype or paper uh, paper prototype. Um, before you start working on your project and before you start hiring people or getting people involved in it. Um, I think personally, indie games, like there's a ton of indie games out there that are like objectively not good games. I'll, I'll admit that. But um, most of the indie devs that I meet are extremely passionate. They have a vision and they will execute that vision to a point of like it being like a masterpiece, in my opinion, like a, like a game like Firewatch, you know, that game was blew my mind like with what just thinking about what it takes to make a game like playing the game itself from like a player standpoint was also beautiful and like it it had a good flow to it and everything fit um and you know like something like that i don't think can come from a triple a studio anymore um triple a studios now are kind of in my opinion uh like the hollywood of of movies mm -hmm. like if you want to see a good movie sometimes hollywood hits it yeah that's true but most of the time anymore you're getting like indiana jones in a refrigerator while a nuke goes off and it's like <laughs> in the first five minutes of the movie and you're like wait a minute like <laughs> i i thought he was an architect um or archaeologist not an architect he could, <laughs> he could be both <laughs> um but uh you know like you you play a game Again, you know, something like Uncharted, it's going to be beautiful. There's going to be tech in that game that blows your mind. Like whether you're a player or a developer, a designer, an artist, an engineer, like a game like that is truly, truly a work of art. But you're not going to get the same gameplay experience as if you go and play something like Firewatch. Like in my in my opinion, I would recommend someone play Firewatch way over playing Uncharted. Like you're going to get a personal experience out of Firewatch um, and you can feel it. Um, yeah, I, I do think. I, go, ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go I, ahead. Oh, I was just to say, you know, I I agree with you. It's it's an interesting thing because I, you know, I played Firewatch as well, and I really I really enjoyed it, and it was like you said on so much more like it almost felt like a personal level, like. I don't know, like, cause you, you were just embodying that person and were being like, you know, the storyline unfolded in front of you yeah. and it was a risk. I don't think that the triple A studios would take, even though they seem to have, I mean, they have these big budgets and can do it. It's, it's almost funny to me that I think the indie community who has the most probably risk at not succeeding or getting their game out there because yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're small scrappers and they've got these great ideas and you know, you want to see that succeed, but the reality of things is a lot of time, time and money won't, you know, allow for that but it, it does seem that the triple a studios like just don't like to take those risks they know what their formulas are their budgets and kind of want to push that out and so it's like they don't want really to want to deviate from you know their normal content or pipeline or you know anything like that like you said they can create yeah. a lot of good engineering tools but they seem to put those toward the same uses you know yeah well what's really interesting too is if you look at a lot of the games that big studios make um you can also find like smaller teams that work on smaller games like at, at crystal dynamics they worked on guardian of light um it was like a lara croft like top-down puzzle shooter like co-op puzzle shooter like couch co-op thing that oh, game yeah. was amazing guardian of light was fantastic um and like i liked it way better than tomb raider and, and don't get me wrong like tomb raider the the reboot um 
like i think it's a pretty solid game it's not bad by any means um but uh when you when you look at it like i feel like you have to take a risk as an indie indie dev and plus the other thing is you don't have like you might okay you it depends on your relationship with like your publisher or you know whoever's giving you your money right like if you're self-funded of course you're gonna make whatever you want you know like and whatever the team ends up like kind of you know creating um because these things kind of evolve organically as you as you make them um but if you have like a really good relationship with say like sony or something you're gonna end up making a game um that you want to make but sony ultimately is like okay well it's our money so (laughs) like it's gonna be what we want it to be um and and i also think like to their own right triple a games you know they have the formula they have like the large target demographic formula where they're going to be able to you know, create content that reaches many, many, many people. And the gameplay itself is probably going to be watered down. You know, it's not going to be hard or challenging, but it is going to be interesting. So, You're going to get I'm sorry. definitely cool tech and good, cool gameplay. But but yeah, that's it. Cool. Yeah. Go ahead. So I'm, I'm question. Uh, we're actually running low on time. So yeah, we kind of have to sorry. wrap it up. But quick question <laughs> about uh, what you're talking about. And I was wondering, like, is the issue that triple a studios are not innovative or are they innovative like they they've produced something that was innovative say a call of duty or a what's another popular i guess franchise but you know tomb raider or any what sure. any of those games so they, they produced something that was or assassin's creed that was innovative or did something amazing had great tech uh and i guess would be you know someone would consider it that was you know that was creative uh and then they get in this flow of oh, hey this this is the the I guess the marketing or we have, we've reached a, a niche a genre or a piece of market that we want to target. Yeah. Uh, is So is it really that they're not innovative or innovative or is they've, they've got a market and, and I think there's still studios that, you know, once they hit like a, an Assassin's Creed or a Call of Duty, they still do some innovation outside of that. Or I don't know, is it, do you really, th- is it an issue that they're not innovative or? I mean, the, the way that you kind of have to look at it is that mm-hmm. they, they did find that successful formula. They found something yeah. that worked very, very well. And, and sure, it was probably innovative in the first round, you know, like or the maybe first even Assassin's the second Creed, or third, you know, like <laughs> that, that was game changing the open world nature that you could climb over any object, you know, like it just, it blew everyone away because at the time nobody had been doing that. And if they had, it hadn't reached that critical mass that, that everyone knew about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, okay, well, I found the perfect recipe for this burger and I'm going to yeah. sell this burger to millions and millions of people, yeah. but yep. it, they don't want a different burger that like is actually a hot dog, you know, like they no. want to eat that burger. They want to keep paying <laughs> for that burger because it's so good. And I, I will say, I don't think it's sustainable. I think you do have to like continually change up the game. You can ride out that formula for only a certain amount of time. What about like I, McDonald's? And Burger King, yeah. But see, I'm, I'm saying like they are sustainable. They they have you know stand at the test of time. And I think everyone's like an indie until they're not. So I feel like sure. I don't think there's a like innovation will come with new companies, I guess. And and the McDonald's and the the <laughs> for everyone who get, doesn't get this reference, but just like the franchises, <laughs> yeah. they they'll innovate slightly on their hamburger and make like the Chick Fil A spicy chicken sandwich, or the McRibs, or, or, or the McRibs. Yeah, McRibs, so yeah, I think they go. still they bring back the Szechuan sauce. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think they do that that sort of internal in- innovation or small shifts in I guess their output to keep 
you know, keep sustainable, which Call of Duty, you know, arguably or not arguably has done, you know? Yeah, they and, changed up their series a now, little bit. And Resident but... Evil and, you know, all these little franchises, even Assassin's Creed, which, you know, had some up and down years, but still they've well, made... Yeah, I think I think we're getting into a bit bigger debate, but yeah, yeah I, yeah, I kind of see what you're getting. Yeah, getting at there, but I mean, like you know, you're saying with the Call of Duty franchise, it's like, yeah, that was tasty, but now my palate's kind of numb from it. Like, yeah, I, I think exactly. the most recent ones' numbers have fallen off. And That's if true. you look at something like Resident Evil, like Seven really got me because it was going back and trying something different than this, like sort of almost shoot 'em up arcadey thing they started right. moving yeah. toward. Yeah. And that's the yeah. hilarious part is like yeah. eventually you take your formula so far that you can wrap around and reboot yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that's the Now you start the process again. So next one is going to be World War Two for Battlefield, and they're like, "Oh yep. shit, we're done," you know. So well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, Battlefield. Yeah, exactly. Battlefield went back to like what was it in World War One now? Yeah, like yeah. 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 Exactly. It's like cool. It's crazy. Yeah. No. I, I I agree with all of that. Um. And I know we're running short on time, so I will just say that I believe a lot of it comes down to also marketing budget. How many people can you buy with your marketing? Hmm. Like that. That's a big factor of it. I mean, you'll spend probably the same amount of money on your development cycle as you will on your marketing in hmm. a lot of these AAA studios. Oh, totally. You know. True. So cool. Well, it, it sucks that we couldn't got dive deeper, but maybe we'll have you guys back on the show. I know Josh mentioned an excellent topic of conversation we could probably have in the future. Uh, it's a secret. It's a secret. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, just to end, I guess uh, if you guys could drop a little bit of knowledge, like, do you, would you leave our listeners with one piece of advice for oh, content man. designers or game designers? Uh, the tools are out there. Just go pick them up. Start, start messing around in them. Go make something crazy. Go make something nuts. Go on itch.io and download some free games. See how crazy those indie games are, mm-hmm. and like make something. Do a, do a master study. Go make a great indie game copy. Hmm. Try to make a try to make Minecraft and just see if you can do it or something. I don't know. That's pretty. That's pretty intense. But like you know, <laughs> that's what painters do. They do master studies. They go paint. You know, like some. I don't know sergeant or something and (laughs) and that's how they learn um yeah okay i guess i'll follow up to that one uh (laughs) you know i think i think everybody has a voice and the key is to to find your voice and figure out how best to communicate what you want to communicate through and if you want to make it into a game then then by all means like find a way to communicate that feeling, that thought, whatever that goal is, and iterate, learn how to iterate, learn how to communicate. Because that's really all that content design is, is communicating to the player something. Yeah. Nice. Well said. Excellent. Practice. Iteration. <laughs> yes. Get out cool. there and do something. Be kids. perfect on the first try. Wait. Yes. That, that also, that, that really does help. <laughs> Why don't you just make a million dollars the first time? <laughs> or already have a million dollars. Yeah. Make the next Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. There. Cool. Words of wisdom. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for joining us on the show. I'm sure our listeners will thoroughly yes. enjoy this one. Thank uh, you for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Or you want to pub that uh, Twitch channel just before you head out? Oh, oh yeah, sure. Um, so I haven't streamed in a while. So <laughs> is he going to stream on again? That's <laughs> yeah. the real uh, question. This actually is a better, no, no better place than to announce it on a podcast. Now you're forced um, to. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'll probably boot my Twitch stream up again. It's twitch.tv slash tessercat. That's T-E-S-S-E-R-C-A-T. It's like a tesseract, but cat instead. <laughs> um, 
we usually do horror games that we turn into drinking games. Oh, horror, horror, horror. Games. I was like, horror, oh, horror, like, horror games, <laughs> What genre God, is this? <laughs> it's an adult channel. Um, <laughs> all the Japanese games you can handle. It's yeah, actually not allowed terrible. on Twitch at all. We just don't have anybody reporting us because <laughs> we have no viewers. Us. Yeah. Um, but no, we do that um, the first, well, we're going to start doing it again. The first uh, Saturday and third Saturday of every month. And Ben is my lovely co-host and mod. And uh, we go on there and we get real silly. Nice. Excellent. Well, thanks again, guys, for joining us on the show. Again, that was yes, Josh Herbert you. and Benjamin Gross. Yep. And if you guys want to find me on Twitter, I am Bental Giant. So Ooh. like Gentle Giant, but with Ben at the beginning instead. Nice. Cool. Well, you guys have a good one and we'll hopefully catch you guys again. Thanks, guys. Cool. Right Thank you very much. Alright, so that was our interview with, again, that was Benjamin Gross and Joshua Herbert, and they're here at Sprocket as content designers, and I feel like they dropped a lot of great knowledge. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I know this episode's running a little late, long, so... Yeah, they had so much good stuff to talk about, and I, I think we're we're probably going to spiral off into another episode, even with the, you know just the whole like AAA and indie conversation about For content sure. delivery and like evolution. Yeah, that's that was just a whole other thing. But yeah, th- th- guys were great, uh, real smart guys, real fun guys, and I was glad they could come on the show and talk to us about Rip, that, homie. So yeah. uh, just so you guys can uh, join in on our, I guess what Zach calls our sort of secret group or exclusive group, which is the Debug Lounge. It's a Facebook group that you can join if you just go to Facebook and search for the Debug Lounge. Uh, Also, you can catch our show, which we're actually doing some iteration on, changing it up a little bit. We'll talk about that more on a different episode. Uh, But that's on YouTube. Just search for the Debug Lounge there. Um, And Ryan, you want to talk about the Patreon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also, do not forget to hit us up on Patreon, please. If you like what you're hearing, uh, you want to hear more of it, uh, you know, hey, check us out and, you know, give a donation if you can. If not, that's awesome, too. But um, we're at patreon.com slash the debug log. And we offer, you know, the various sort of menu of things if you uh, decide to become a... (laughs) The menu of things. things. (laughs) I can't remember them all off the top of my head. Yeah, I think, um, You get some some perks. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we appreciate it, definitely. Up. So anyway, if you want to reach me on Twitter, I am at O'Beans, that's O with an H, Beans with a Z. And I'm at Ari Kilgore, K-I-L-L-G-O-R-E. Sweet. Peace. See you next time. <laughs>